Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 92 of the Simple Life Podcast. I hope you've had a wonderful couple of weeks. We took last week off for a very special reason. I'm sure you may have seen, or hopefully you were all there, because there was thousands of you lot there. Product Earth was a wonderful expo this weekend. I say this weekend, last weekend. A great gathering of the cannabis community and the cannabis minds. It was brilliant to see the culture, the community, uh, the corporations, and obviously uh, the legislators, regulators, and everybody else kind of getting together and having a smooch in a field for a good few days. It was great fun. I hope you all enjoyed it. Don't know why I've still got the posters up here, but we're going to give me a little bit more free advertising because, you know, it was a really good event. So, yeah, folks, let me know what you thought of Product Earth in the comments below. We may have a debrief with the team in a couple of weeks. I think it might be necessary because we had them on before. So now we need to see what they thought of the event. Now you lovely lot went and spent all your money, gave all your free time to go and support one of, if not the biggest event in the UK. So without further ado, bit of a shit segue this week, folks. I do apologize about that. Today's guest is, where's my notes? Oh my God, I'm not prepared. I do have some notes. Here we go. <laughs> is um, Today's guest is a cannabis consultant, activist, strategic advisor. I'm looking forward to finding out what that is. Public speaker and contributor for Forbes magazine who co-founded Harborside Inc. in California and the more, more recent Last Prisoner Project and is a founding member of the cannabis, uh, I can't remember what the CCI is. California Cannabis Industry Association. There you go. I got there eventually. Too many acronyms in this bloody world of ours. And they're also the star of, or one of the stars of the first ever, I didn't realize this, there's already been one, reality TV series about cannabis. They are Andrew D'Angelo. How are you doing, brother? Hello, Simba. Great to be with you today. I'm great. I'm fantastic. Excellent, excellent. Yes, yeah, so we were just sort of remarking um, before we started recording here. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. This is obviously the first time we've we've really spoken. We've had an opportunity to to meet and interact. So I'm I'm very excited to uh, to yeah see where this conversation goes. Yes, the wild world of cannabis leads us down many paths. So let's see what happens. <laughs> indeed, she does. Indeed, she does. I suppose we'll um we'll start with quite an early one. I want to establish not just for my viewers, but I suppose for, for myself as well. I've 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 seen your work in in Forbes um quite quite a lot recently um also obviously as you've produced more of it um but I've also seen seen your name reference obviously with your brother and your work and obviously I lo looked into a lot of uh, what Steve did when I was preparing for his recording so I just I kind of want to get more of a, an idea of, of who you are and how you got involved with with cannabis so how did you first come across this wonderful plant of ours? Well, my older brother Steve is how I first came across. <laughs> the cannabis plant. Steve's about 10 years older than me. So he started doing this when he was 14 or 15. I'm just, I'm just barely out of diapers at that point, four or five years old. So my brother never hid his cannabis use for me growing up or his, he was a trader of cannabis. That's how he made a living from the earliest days of his my brother left home to join the anti-Vietnam War revolution that was happening in this country, the United States, in the late 60s, early 70s, this, early 70s for him. Um, we didn't get out of the war till 74. So in 71, 72, my brother left home and as a pretty young teenager, 15 years old, and um, and 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 joined their movement. And, and, th and he traded weed to pay for it all <laughs> as many people did in those days. And, and so I grew up ar around cannabis. I, I, I remember one distinct memory. My, my brother had an associate in Florida. I don't know. I must've been seven or eight years old. My brother's probably only 17 or 18. And 
I go down the basement where the TV is and there's just huge bales of weed just all around drying and they got fans blowing on them and it smells really dang like like a mold and I and I'm like what's going on can I watch TV <laughs> uh, and he's like no you got to go back upstairs uh, I didn't know you were coming down here this is a cannabis this is what I do and he kind of explained what it was that they were doing down there apparently they had fished some weed out of the ocean in Florida uh, that fell off a smuggling boat or something and um they were drying it out so they could resell it um, um, and and uh, or try to salvage something from it, make hash from it, something. Um, and that's what they were doing down there. I didn't find that out till years later. Um, so, you know, cannabis was sort of all around me because of my older brother, Steve. Mm. As you can imagine, my parents weren't too thrilled with my brother <laughs> um, uh, um, in those days. So they sheltered me from him and they did, they, they didn't really embrace cannabis. So I grew up as a jock. I was an athlete and, and um, I didn't really take any cannabis until I got hurt uh, in high school. And my dream of becoming the next John McEnroe was, was dashed into a thousand pieces. And I was very depressed and didn't know what to do with myself and you know mm. wasn't let us say dating women <laughs> yet uh, 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 and i didn't i was really lonely and sad and um and i thought i was gonna die and my brother handed me a joint and because we were having dinner together at my mom's house and he said you you need this right now and he had been offering me cannabis a lot up until that point because I was in high school and he figured it was far too late for me to start already. And uh, so I, but I had said no up until this point, but I was just so, there was a little voice inside me. Maybe you felt heard this voice your first time too, when someone offered you weed. It's, there's so much stigma around weed that the, the natural response is no, because you're scared or you don't want to get busted or you're, You've been told all these lies and so forth and so on. But this time, instead of saying no, there was a little voice inside me that said, you need to say yes to this. And I said yes to the joint and smoked it with him. And, you know, about five, 10 minutes later, I realized my pain was gone. My physical pain was gone. Mm -hmm. uh, I had really bad back injury that took months to heal and I was in a lot of physical pain. So the pain went away. And then, and then not only did my physical pain away, go away, but my psychic pain that I was experiencing, having lost my dream of being a professional athlete and not having a girlfriend and being in high school and kind of being an awkward kid with lots of acne on my face and not looking as handsome as I do today. Um, uh, it, you know, it, it helped lift all that sadness and despair that I was feeling. And it gave me a chance to say, hold on a second. I'm healthy. I'm strong. I'm smart. I got talent. There's shit I can do in the world. I'm not going to F this up. Um, and the cannabis gave me that message. Mm -hmm. And it changed, it really, really profoundly changed me. I mean, I, 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 
I, I immediately knew there was more to life than sports. I immediately, because I didn't really do anything except play sports, man. That's all I did. The magazines I got were tennis magazines. The way I made extra money was I strung tennis rackets. Well, I taught tennis to kids. I mean, I was just completely obsessed like I am with everything. Um, um, and it just happened to be tennis. And so, but so it, it gave me a real sense of there's more to life than this mm. and you can go find it and you can be, you can take risks and you can maybe, I want it to, do something creative. I, I wanted to do something that in the arts, this was the 1980s. You got to understand. So, um, you know, I couldn't like go work in the legal cannabis industry that exists today in California, where I live or play other places in the United States that didn't exist. You couldn't go do that. Um, you had to go do something else and then sell weed on the side, you know, um, um, or, or if trading weed be, you can't, it became successful enough. You basically did that full time, um, uh, uh, which eventually is what happened to me and my brother. But, but, um, uh, so, so I was introduced with Steve that first joint, you know, really changed me. I uh, immediately, literally within three days, I was selling weed to my friends in high school, um, and being, the same evangelical person about cannabis I am today. I was at that moment in time and, and, you know, I've been trading cannabis ever since now I teach other people how to trade <laughs> cannabis. That's sort of what strategic advisor means <laughs> um, uh, uh, is I just help other people build their businesses and trade legally, you know, and, um, and, and, and so that's and me and my brother built a lot of cannabis businesses over the years, Harborside being one of them, our, our, our company in California. And we also have a nonprofit last prisoner project that we started more recently. That's about getting prisoners out of cannabis prisoners out of prison. Um, and you know, it's been my life, the advocating for trading of, and being with, the cannabis community and cannabis mm. people. It's yeah. A, a wonderful story that I hear in a thousand guises every, every time I speak to someone that they're living their life. Cannabis enters their life and all of a sudden their life has meaning. Uh, it's the same story myself was literally, I mean, I might have quite a different application. I don't know if, uh, do Americans know what a lung is? Do you, do you know what, what? A, lung, a lung? Like your breathing apparatus, lungs? Yeah, so of course, yeah. Yeah, but no, but a, a cannabis lung in the UK, I don't know if it, this is a bit of education for my 5% American audience out there. Yeah. Um, you cut off the top of a plastic bottle, you use the bottom of a, bre a bread bag, you tape it onto the bottle, and then what you do is you use a, like a chillum that you'd use for a, I think you guys call it a gravity bong or we call it a bucket. Um, oh, it's so like a vaporizer bag. Kind of, yeah, but a lot worse. And so we used to smoke really low-grade hash in the UK. We used to have what we call tack, colloquially, in the Northeast. And it was really badly broken down, you know, usually from, like, industrial sources, very little cannabinoids in it. And so my first experience was watching one of those, like, explode and fill with this creamy white brown and smoking it and, and coughing for about 10 minutes. But once my body kind of calmed down, it was the calmest I'd ever been. 
and I was I had a really sort of difficult use, but immediately I I had clarity. I could think, I could feel, I could process. And kind of since that moment, all I've ever wanted to do is protect this plant because she gave me purpose. Yeah, I hear the same same thing from everybody I talk to too. It's a very common experience. And it's 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 I think one reason our tribe of people is is bound together so closely, even though this first time we've ever met or talked. Exactly that, exactly that. I mean, there is the old quip, or you see it now in a few modern kids out there, the meme of uh, a guy asks another guy, uh, do you smoke? And the guy goes, smoke what? You've made a friend. Did <laughs> you know I mean? This is, we we yeah. immediately, yeah. as soon as you know the other person is cool with weed, you're like, all right, I can just be myself now. I don't have to yeah. hide anything. I don't have to build any barriers up and yeah. act with pretense. It's a wonderful feeling to be able to freely communicate with another spirit that you've literally just met in front of you. Yeah, and in the UK, just like it was here in the 80s and 90s, and in some places in the country, our southern, the United States uh, in the south is still very conservative, and Midwest and, you know, the Bible Belt and all that. Um, uh, You know, uh, the stigma is still really, really high, so um, uh, it's, 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 it's a little bit different story. You know, um, uh, coming out of the the green closet and 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 those in, in places like like mm. that, and like the UK. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You were uh, you raised an interesting point as well that I've never really thought of. Obviously, we've just had contradictory data that's come out recently that's suggesting that globally more youth than ever are doing drugs. But the the metadata that we've seen out of most U.S. states typically suggests that youth consumption um, lessens. It used to be the quintessential thing of, yeah, high school in America or just secondary school here in the U.K., at some point you would have an opportunity to be introduced to cannabis. Now, because their parents smoke it, oh, my dad smokes weed, it's not cool. So they're not getting this early opportunity to to have that first intervention and experience with cannabis. And I think that I'm just I'm formulating this as I'm going, but I think there is potentially something obviously twinned with smartphones and social media that's probably driving this anxiety and depression because the youth for all we I'm not condoning under 18s or 21s in America using scheduled drugs. That's not what I'm saying. Maybe it is what I'm saying, but don't sue me. But do you know what I mean? We, we've traditionally for decades had that, indo- not indoctrination, uh, what do you call it? It's like a cultural rite of passage, a ritual. And now it's kind of gone. And I wonder if we're starting to see the consequences of this. So then these, these high school kids that are getting injured now moving on to opioids quite quickly and ended up potentially down a very different route because I mean, cannabis is not right there, there in the same way. Obviously, this is in, I've entirely just made that up as I go, so... I've got no evidence. Well, I mean, I think, I think what you're illuminating is unintended consequences of legalization sometimes. So mm. it's not as cool as it used to be to smoke weed in high school because it's not taboo. And it's uh, so they're all doing vape pen, uh, like tobacco. Vape uh, is a big problem. Vaping tobacco juice is a big problem in high schools right now. Super unhealthy for you. Um, mm. But but it's cooler, it's taboo, and it's cooler than smoking weed. Um, same thing with some of the harder stuff like opioids that you mentioned. Um, and it's a, it's an unintended consequence. It's something that our job as creatives and cultural cannabis people is to make it cool all the time. So, you know, we just have to 
get through to the younger generations that cannabis is always cool. There are some things that are always cool. Sex is always cool if you're young. <laughs> um, music is always cool when you're young. Um, and what I would what I would what I would say are are the 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 drugs part of sex, drugs, and rock and roll is really important to use. What we want is for folks to do the least harmful and most beneficial drugs, <laughs> mm. um, like cannabis, and I would also say psychedelics, other plant plant based, you know, um, intoxicants and sort of get away from fermentation, alcohol, and, you know, some of the white powders and, 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 um, and concentrate on, I call the Cali sober lifestyle (laughs) where it's basically weed and psychedelics and, 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 you know, and, and then when we do indulge in, in something different than that, we're safe about it. We test it. We make sure there's no fentanyl or, something that can really hurt us or kill us in it. And, you know, we are responsible. I think that, you know, adults, even people over the age of 18, I don't believe in this 21 crap. I think it should be 18 for everything. If you can go to war and die, you should be able to get high. I mean, come on. So, um, and, and get drunk. You can't even get drunk in the United States, um, uh, until you're 21. So, legally anyway of course everyone does whenever they want but but let alone get stoned so Mm -hmm. so you know it's 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 um did i answer the question (laughs) (laughs) i think you did i think you did yeah um and yeah it's interesting i was I think in in a little bit we'll get on some more of the kind of unintended consequences of uh, legalization um and I suppose other Asians Asians not Asians again don't get out Yeah, we just got to keep making it cool, man. We just got to keep making it cool. Look, it, 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 if the kids think other stuff is cool and cannabis is not cool then we we made a mistake somewhere. We we went uh, we we didn't do our jobs right. Agreed. So, Agreed. So yeah, I was gonna say let's make cannabis taboo again, but wait, I don't know. I'm conflicted here. Um, so I, so, so, I know, so am I. Believe me. It's yeah. It's, 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 every week on this podcast, my opinion changes. Every time I write an article, I get to the end of it and go, "Crap!" Now I've got to reevaluate everything I think and feel. And it's just constantly on this cycle of yeah. Just, mm-hmm. But it, that's the healthy way to be human. You need to be skeptical. You need to be open to new information and adaptive and willing to evolve. Really. Yeah, I suppose in all well classes. Said. Well said. Uh, well said. Uh, I suppose chronology, let's continue. So we know how you've been introduced to cannabis. Um, yeah. Obviously, you sort of alluded to then starting Harborside. So how? what's the space in between? How did you decide from going from allegedly, potentially trading cannabis? Um, I don't know what, I don't know what the, the, oh, the no, laws are now. Alleged, it was real. Um, I, yeah, I started <laughs> selling weed in high school. I went, I when I... I went far away to college. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. area, and I went to college in California because I just couldn't take it anymore, and I needed to get someplace that was more liberal and um, more open to what I wanted to be when I grew up. (laughs) Mm. Um, So, And I wanted to study 
acting and theater arts and film. And so I wanted to be near LA, Los Angeles. And so, and I got lucky. I got a 50% scholarship to a school out there, a little school called Chapman. So I went there and uh, when you go, you don't have a lot. I mean, I grew up a middle-class kid from a broken family. So um, my parents split up when I was really young and Obviously, my brother ran away, well, kind of ran away from home and joined the revolution. And then, you, you know, so that was a challenging environment to grow up in. But, but, but so I didn't have a lot. It wasn't like I was going to, I was a rich kid at school that had a car and all this wealth and stuff. I had one suitcase I took to college with me and it had half a pound of weed in it. <laughs> um, and just the essential. Somehow I didn't get busted smuggling that weed on the airplane. Um, and I got out there and just like you alluded to a moment ago, I start finding the kids that smoked weed. Um, and so if I saw somebody with a Bob Marley sticker, you know, on their book bag or something, I talked to them. If I saw somebody with a Grateful Dead thing, you know, um, if I saw somebody in a tie dye shirt, um, if, if I saw someone in a heavy metal band, you know, shirt, you know, um, uh, I would approach them and say, Hey, let's go smoke some weed. Uh, and some, you know, 90% of the time I guess, right. And they'd say, yes, do you have any weed? And I say, yes, I do. And, <laughs> you know, we would, we would go and then I would try to sell them some weed, of course. Um, and then that's how I built my business. So then when I was done with my studies, my brother had already built a pretty successful wholesale trading cannabis trading business. He also had a legal cannabis company he was starting that was a hemp company. And we were making clothes out of hemp, hundred uh, percent hemp fiber. Uh, and, and so he needed my help and my mom was getting older and my parents were getting older. So I decided to go back home and, help him with the wholesale business and, and see if I could save enough money to make my own plays and my own films and, and kind of do that too. And I was able to do both those things. Um, and you know, kind of had a great time doing that for a while. And, um, then we passed medical cannabis law in California in 1996. And my brother and I helped fund that because we were, we're making a, good money at that point. Um, we were also doing some pretty scary stuff in terms of we were wholesalers. So at one point we're selling, I don't know, thousand pounds of weed a month, you know, or more. And, and so it was kind of scary uh, moving that much cannabis, but we were good at it. I was good at it. And I've managed to finance some plays and films and one of my films went to the Sundance festival. And, um, so, you know, I was really kind of moving along in that part of my life. And then we passed along Washington DC two years after California, our hometown and the government nullified the law. The federal government has jurisdiction over Washington DC in the United States. It's really strange. It's as if London was not a free city. <laughs> But it, Washington, D.C. is not really a free city, even though it has its own mayor, it has its own council. It doesn't have control over its own budget. And so the federal government can tell the city that it won't 
authorize any money to spend on whatever program they don't want to fund. And, and so in this case, they didn't fund medical the implementation of the law we passed. And so nothing could happen. We couldn't open a dispensary. We couldn't open a harborside. We couldn't do anything. And we were really pissed off about that. Um, shortly after that, my brother got busted with a load of weed. Um, and that really changed our lives for the worse. And it took us a few years. That was the late, that was right around 2000 um, and 2001. And it took us, you know, literally five years to recover from that. And uh, finally I convinced him and, and my mom to move out to California where I had already been for a little while after we passed the law and they nullified the law. I said, F this, I'm going to California. My brother stayed back and 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 kept working um, and taking care of my my parents too and 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 then you know eventually we got everybody out to the west coast and then we were able to open Harborside in 2006 in Oakland. Oakland was the first place in California to actually issue a license uh, to somebody to have a medical cannabis dispensary. It was only medical cannabis in California in those days. Not, we didn't get adult use cannabis till 2018 here. Um, and so for the first, this was 06, for the first 12 years of our existence, we were a medical cannabis company. And, and so that's where we became very well known because we were one of the first and because we had a vision and a model that was a lot different than than what was available at that time in California. People really responded to it. And Hollywood came knocking. We got the first reality TV show. There's been many since then, of course. Mm -hmm. But the first reality TV show <laughs> uh, called Weed Wars that me and my brother got to be on. And it was all about our, our business, our patients, our staff, ourselves, our family. And you know, that was a lot of fun. We had a lot to, and we inspired a lot of people all over our country and perhaps the world to try to legalize weed in their communities and, and try to get severe kids with epilepsy. I was, I was on the TV program, giving the first child with epilepsy cannabis tincture anywhere in the world. We were the first people to do that. And as you know, those kids have, you know, really caused a revolution, you know, to spread across the globe with respect to treating epilepsy with cannabis. And so, um, and it doesn't cure epilepsy, just so your listeners know that it, it's just, uh, it greatly reduces the number of seizures by like 90%. And so you got these kids that literally die from seizures, um, cause they have 20, 30 seizures a day sometimes. Um, and you can cut that down to one a day or maybe even just a couple a week. You reduce the fatality events by 90 percent. So it's 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 really amazing what we discovered with that. And 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 that a lot of that came out of our lab testing program, which revealed what CBD was and and got CBD going Um uh, so, you know, we were able to do a lot of sort of first revolutionary things with Harborside, like lab testing, like discovering CBD, like breeding cannabis for CBD, like giving that cannabis to kids with epilepsy, 
and 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 so you know that's that's sort of my story up to now i would say concise and impressive i, w- I would say <laughs> as well i mean few people manage to transition from one world to the other um and do it successfully let alone a family. I mean, you and your brother obviously have achieved a hell of a lot between you. I mean, how would you, I mean, actually, I can hear my listeners screaming in my head. I'm going to end up having a <clears throat> challenge the nomenclature of medical as a word, but I'm just, I'm putting a pin in it for my audience just because of the speech I made this weekend at Product Earth. Uh, we'll, we'll loop back to that in a minute, but I just wanted to continue this chronology. I'm just settling the, the eager uh, yeah, chance of uh, my listeners in the background there. Obviously, <laughs> psych- psychosomatic, obviously. They're not really there, folks. I don't believe they're there. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah back to my earlier point. Um, so, yeah, you and your brother, you, you've achieved a great deal. Most people are siblings. They, they, they don't really get on. Or you get on and you like you see each other at Christmas. How have you managed to operate for so long together in both a, a lawful and lawful environment and achieve, well, so much, do you think? Well, you have, it's not easy for siblings to work together without driving each other mad. But we had, like I said, we came from a broken family and we also had tragedy when we were early, younger kids, our brother Daniel died. And so the combination of that made us very mindful uh and grateful for each other so we you have to sacrifice you each have to sacrifice for the whole um and part of it was easier because you know i I, for a long time i wanted my brother to be the leader and i sort of implemented what his vision was and made sure it happened right um and that worked real good because that's what my brother does. <laughs> He's a visionary leader and he he casts vision and he gets other people to implement. And I was the best at doing that. And and we also had, you know, a level of trust that only people that have share the same blood can have together. So and that was really important when we were underground. Uh, um obviously um and and it's important when you're building legal businesses too trust is critically important Mm. so so you know that 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 now that we're 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 we don't own and operate a cannabis business together right now anymore um we're we're we do creative projects together and we have our nonprofit last prison project we do together um and then i have my consulting business my brother is um not not needing to be a consultant <laughs> um in, in in the way he makes a living and so but he's he's got new and exciting projects that he's he he he's he's he recent he more recently left harborside than i did so um he's still doing his pivot into you know new new ventures so but he's got a bunch of really exciting things he's working on um and he's we're both getting more and more into the psychedelic space too now um as that decriminalization and legalization starts to happen with 
psychedelics here in the United States. So, so that's another area. We think that there's a lot to be learned in, in psychedelics from yeah. some of the mistakes we've learned in cannabis we made in cannabis. And I think places like the UK could certainly benefit from, you know, we got legalization wrong in a lot of ways for adults here in California. We, we, we got it wrong and mm -hmm. it, there's no reason for anyone to ever make those mistakes again. So let's, let's make sure that unfortunately everyone is making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, but you know, hopefully we can stop that. <laughs> I hope so anyway. Yeah, you and me both, brother. You and me both, because the, yeah, the, I'm seeing the same people that didn't build the tracks, weren't driving the train. They got on a one-stop, hijacked it, and crashed it at the next, getting on to the people that are building the tracks for entheogens and psychedelics. And it's their structure, their framework, patented synthetics. So... Oof. The further we remove ourselves from nature, the more fucked up we get. We have not, how have we not learned this lesson with opium? For centuries, it was, yeah, effectively quite, quite benign. Yes, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, quite a dependence in inducing substance. And obviously we had the opium wars and the century of shame and a hell of a lot of history there. But in terms of the deaths of overdose, nothing like what we have these days. The synthetics of fentanyl, and now they've got car fentanyl, which I think they're actually uh, marketing as an elephant tranquilizer just so it has some form of legitimate purpose for it to then exist to then be diverted into the the criminal marketplace it's mm. it's it's terrifying when actually if you then look at the cultures we adopted and kind of took these traditions from they would mix hashish and opium you know they would use them for rituals and for ceremony it was never about constant constant continual intoxication whereas Western capitalism has gone oh you like this a little of this you're gonna fucking love a lot of this then get it in you and yeah I well, know it's uh, yeah i i think it's very well said very well said you know prohibition of anything tends to make whatever that thing is smaller and more potent yeah, yeah. um so we've seen that with 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 drugs obviously and and so ending prohibition is critically important that doesn't mean we all have the answers to getting legalization right mm. because there's so much fuckery we have to unfuck that um, it's we're gonna we're, there's no way to <laughs> how do I put this without using the F word too many times there's no way to un -F it without effing it a little bit because it's so <laughs> feel free to, um, uh, to swear all you want on this podcast my uh, yeah audience i mean it's like it's so fucked up that the only way to unfuck it is to fuck it up because it's that's how fucked up it is so it it it, it, it and, and it's a shame it that it, it got to that point but you're right there was a time where everything was plant-based everything was pretty low dose there no, you, you might get strung out on opium but you're not going to become dysfunctional you're not going to lose your family you're not going to lose your wife you're not going to lose your job you're not going to lose any of that um and it, you know and there's a few people on the extreme end who might get really strung out and and some of those things might happen to them on opium but it was a very very low rate of extreme addiction and a very high rate of of funk of, of, of just an effective 
medicine to have in the pharmacy that you can get basically over the counter. So, um, you know, and now we have this 100,000 Americans died from fentanyl and overdoses just in the last year. And I've gone to three funerals just in the last year. One was alcohol and two were hard drugs. And, um, and it's heartbreaking. These are usually younger and, and talented people, good people, nice people, kind people that, you know, thought they were doing Coke and they did fentanyl or, or they drank too much. They drank themselves to death during the pandemic or, you know, whatever, what, whatever it might be. Um, we're losing a lot of people and it prohibition has a lot of reason to do with why we're losing mm-hmm. so many people. And if we care about human life, if we care about stopping the funerals, we will move people. We will end prohibition. We will, you know, like we here in California, uh, the governor just vetoed this bill that would allow people to go into a safe place and shoot up hard drugs, get them tested for fentanyl, shoot up hard drugs, make sure they don't OD, have a doctor there. And and the governor vetoed it. It took like 15 years for activists to get this thing on the uh, through the legislature. Mm and to the governor and he vetoed it and it's not going to happen now because we don't have enough votes to override the veto. And, and, and so, and people are going to die, you know, people are going to die because of this lunacy of this, this just stupidity. And he's like, well, more people might do drugs and there's going to be inadvertent consequences. Like how could there be any more people dying than there are now? How could there possibly be any more you know, than we have now. I mean, it's a, we've reached emergency epidemic proportions here. And, and so, you know, to reverse all of that were, it means that, you know, we, 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 we're going to get some policies wrong sometimes Um, or like, and we have to be able to learn from that and adjust and make sure that we're getting things right. Um, and, and, you know, all learn together and be humble about this because mm-hmm. our two goals should be saving lives and making sure our people don't go to prison. So, and getting people out of prison um, because dying and going to jail are the two biggest risks and harms to society that prohibition poses. Um, um, and legalization, you already have massive rates of addiction with prohibition. Prohibition increases addiction. It doesn't decrease addiction Mm -hmm. because the drugs are more potent because they have to be made smaller. So you can smuggle them and not get caught. And um, that's what fentanyl does. Fentanyl is much smaller than heroin um, and cocaine, which is much smaller than marijuana to smuggle. And that's why people do coke instead of weed and people do fentanyl instead of coke because it's easier to get a hold of. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't disagree with anything you've said. I, I agree. I agree. But I, I encapsulated a thought for the first time i think it's really on the on the head or at least it is in my brain this might sound like gibberish as it comes out of my mouth but 
why don't we prohibit trauma? Drugs, right, hear me out. So drugs are benign. They are an inanimate object. The drug exists in society. So say cannabis, cannabis isn't illegal. The plant can't be criminalized. We're criminalized for dealing it, for cultivating it, trading it, making profit from it, because it's not legal to be high on it or for it to be in you. Um, but the reason that certain people is like lock and key, Johan Hari, uh, a, a British journal, yeah, journalist, he, his work does wonderful. He describes, obviously, that it's not necessarily the old chemical hook that we see. Think of it more as lock and key. So a person has trauma, they're a lock, and they're looking for a key, something that makes them feel whole and unlocks a sense of oneness, of belonging, of you know, love, literally, I heard Maya Sholovitz, I'm sorry if I butchered your name there, speak once, and she described the first time she injected diamorphine heroin on the street, she felt like she was love, she had a hug everywhere, it was the whole body, she felt love for the first fucking time. And so I think if we can stop the paradigm of going, wait, we're basically looking at all of these traumatized people harming themselves in society, destroying their relationships, risking criminality, risking death, overdose, and all the rest of it, why? As Gabor Marte speaks of, you know, ask why the trauma, why the pain, not why the addiction. The addiction is secondary, it's symptomatic. So I think that if we can get anything, it's almost like legalization, decriminalization, scheduling, prescribing, limited access of any plant is almost irrelevant. In a world where trauma is under control, and we as a society, we as the clan, the smallest clan, the family, then the community, then the town, the city, the state, the country, recognize this and, and can help each other heal we could sell heroin on every street corner and it would be like rats in rat park yeah we'd all do a little bit of drugs now and then but none of us would fall in these problematic cycles and if we did there would be a compassionate response from our society you know we already now know that we have nanoxalone i think you guys call it suboxalone in the states yeah to, to, to immediately reverse an opioid overdose there's a pharmaceutical company fuck you, you know who you are, um, that are trying to patent uh, an LSD uh, antagonist. So there's a whole school of thought now that they're trying to work on, basically, if we can create switches to turn off these 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 mechanisms, why then is there a problem? As soon as somebody is going through an experience, if you could be in the worst acid trip of your life, but then imagine that when you got that acid from a regulated space, you were given that knockoff. So you went, oh, I'm in trouble. Oh, where's the, oh, drink the shot. Half an hour later, you're like, oh, that, that was, whew, that was interesting. Do, do, right. do, you know, do you know what I mean? So it's again, it comes to me all back to me. I speak from experience. I have had very problematic relationships with a lot of drugs, predominantly amphetamine. That seems to speak to obviously my ADHD diagnoses, alcohol, because it was every fucking way. Um, and, and basically anything that made me feel empathy, anything that made me feel connected with others. So mushrooms, MDMA, the environments that these drugs create beyond the minimal amount that some people do suffer in dependency and in individual use, this collective use of these compounds was massively cathartic and healing. I spoke of trauma to people at raves that I would never speak to a therapist. And I fear that then gone in the wrong hands, if we suddenly give the same people that have done what they've done with alcohol and tobacco and sugar, for fuck's sake, wow, these are the substances, we're going to be eating so fucking much of them that they're not going to give us any benefit we're not going to be able to recognize and integrate the experience we'll all be so tripped out on fucking mushrooms all the time that we'll absorb whatever bullshit is in front of us because we won't have sobriety clarity moments of did you know i mean in the same way that there's some cultures yeah. no offense to some of our neighbors over here in europe and us especially that drink all day every day effectively you only sober up to go to work you come home you crack your four tins next day you know what i mean you do the same so you're never not 
under the, the influence of alcohol over the entirety of your adult life. I worry, for all I encourage entheogenic experiences and exploration, what the fuck would happen if all of a sudden they go, oh, here's this new microdose LSD. Take this every goddamn day because that makes us the most money. Like, what's that going to do long term, you know? Well, yes. I mean, I think that your observation of trauma being sort of the root cause or one root cause, one major root cause of addiction is insightful. I mean, I, that's what I've seen and observed. All of us that have been in the underground culture, the rave culture, the music culture, it doesn't have to be the weed culture, just creative cultures, painting culture, filmmaking culture. I mean, people have problems with hard drugs and alcohol in those circles. And so you probably know people who are strung out or who are alcoholics or who died maybe in those communities. So, and they, they're all trauma-based, right? Um, why do people, I, I studied acting, a lot of actors come from traumatic childhoods or childhoods where they didn't get enough attention um, or they had a bunch of narcissists around them. <laughs> Not mentioning any childhoods by name. <laughs> um, and so, you, you know, trauma is a, a big driver uh, uh, of this. And, and, and you know, we're, we're not going to be able to, trauma is part of the human experience. And so we can't outlaw, we can't get rid of trauma. But what we can do, like you said, is have a compassionate response to trauma and have available resources for people to use without shame mm -hmm. to deal with their trauma. In the United States, no one wants to, it's considered weak to deal with your trauma, to go to a therapist, to go to a, even a psychedelic therapy center that doesn't even exist yet. But if you could get into one of the trials, even that it has stigma around it. Um, and so it's really hard for people to, who have experienced trauma to then get over this stigma of getting help for that trauma and then actually having whatever that help is work. So, you know, there's a lot to, to, to overcome there. And the sooner we talk about it openly, like you just did, the, the faster we'll get there because we've all had trauma. True. True. I think it's one of the universal human experiences of selves speaking a bit hyperbolic, but prohibiting it because we couldn't, but I just meant in terms of what you said before of everything shrinks under prohibition. And I was thinking before in my head, I was like, yeah, think of phones in prison. There's manufacturers now that make phones small enough to fit into a human body cavity, body cavity to be smuggled into prisons. You oh think, my of, God. think of guns, how small they're making smaller and smaller guns to again for the same thing, knives and all sorts of tools and whatever. There's a whole industry that, that is created by, well, the creative types that then want something that is prohibited. As soon as you limit something, human ingenuity kicks in. 
we are the single like we are problem solving machines that's all yeah. we basically are you put a problem in front of us we figure it out yeah. and then yeah we get muddled up by that trauma and we all we're doing is just trying to figure the thing out in front of us and I think yeah one of the wonderful things of the antheogenic experience and even cannabis for the for the novice consumer a lot of people will speak of having a bad trip on weed or they'll speak of the first this first time of struggling with the the cognitive experience and i think for a lot of people it's the first time they stop and have that conversation with themselves that the consciousness is aligned whether you're a freudian and believe in ego superego and the id uh you know i believe in that called the head the heart the horror of your like instinctual intelligence emotional intelligence cognitive intelligence and when i'm on when i'm on weed when i'm on the pot to use you know the youth, youth vernacular um i often feel this 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 alignment or this conversation not necessarily linguistically but this kind of prompting of emotion of feeling of thought that can get quite cognitively messy you know what i mean it's almost like well, you tune into it like what are you guys talking about and it's for some people i imagine if you live your life i didn't know this until i spoke to my sister about it many years ago some people don't have, you might know, I don't know, I don't actually know. This is the thing that blows my mind. Some people don't have the voice in the head. They don't have the, the, the them talking to themselves, them talking through the experience. And I think then those people, when they consume cannabis, that voice suddenly goes, hey, how are you doing? And they get scared shitless. And it's just a kind of like, whoa. And it's, I think there's something to it that it allows this, like, uh, yeah, unifying of consciousness for a, a brief moment, more so, I guess, on entheogens like DMT or especially things like salvia, where it's it's cacophonous. There's all of this messaging and all of this impulse and all of this uh, uh, inputted data from the universe, and your brain just kind of goes, well, I don't know how to figure the fuck this out, so here you go, just enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, I think, well, <clears throat> I think particularly with edibles, mm. people's receptors can just get overloaded. Um, and they, you know, it's it can be an uncomfortable experience for folks, cannabis. Mm. Psychedelics, same thing. A large dose will hit that receptor pretty hard. Um, it's a little bit different with psychedelics in the sense that you know, I think you're right. It, it, it's consciousness itself has transcended that which the ego wall, um, mm -hmm. and 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 cannabis doesn't quite do that the same way. You can you can be tripping pretty hard on cannabis. I mean, it's a tryptophan. If you've ever eaten cannabis, you know it's it can be very mushroom like, but it's also not quite as deep uh um or as three-dimensional a psychedelic as as psilocybin you know and so when you had an equivalent high dose of psilocybin it's you know your the time-space continuum is interrupted um a little bit differently than than with cannabis but 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 it can be hard and 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 uncomfortable for folks and you know, it's it's better to work your way up to being uh, to to get your psychonaut to have a few test flights before you take the you know you go off into deep space. Um, uh, uh, mm -hmm. it's best to have a few test flights and set and setting is the key. You know, I mean, you don't want to be at a big football game your first time taking you know psilocybin. Probably you want to be at home with some nice music and you know your your lover or wife and you know a nice 
candles and things like that. You want to have a nice set and setting. So um, that's also really key. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. It's uh, it's it's weird, really, because obviously yeah, we consume edibles. That's eleven hydroxy, so it's the most psychedelic of the uh, the cannabinoids. It's the most psychoactive, I guess, of the eh, let's call them naturally occurring. Uh, well, it's ten uh, times more strong than the ten. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's 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 a, it's a powerful thing. I mean, we speak of. I suppose it's a power of ten. Every time you go up, it's a power of mm. ten. And yeah. it, it compounds as well. I was describing uh, an anecdote uh, to a friend earlier about the Christmas that I tried to do 10,000 milligrams. I took 10 grams of THC FECO and applied it to my Christmas meals, put like a thousand mils in the gravy, you know, mixed stuff into the, the wow, oils. The, uh, quite a lot of it got wasted in terms of, because it was in like cooking oil and stuff like that. And yeah, I was describing how I felt on the third day when I woke up and I felt sick and I couldn't like lift it up my head. I had like motion sickness. Yes. And, and I realized later had this kind of epiphany of going, wait, cannabis then slows down your metabolism. If you take a large amount of it, ingest it, it's sitting there. It, then the more it did, digests of it, the slower your metabolism goes. So it's just compounding. And then at some point you have to sleep and the system then goes dormant. You wake up the next day, you've got to work through all that shit again, but you're in a slow gear. So you're just getting lower and lower and lower, like driving uphill till eventually the gear, <laughs> gear box slips. And honestly, that third day, I tried to smoke a joint and went, right, all I need is to be high in my head. If I can be high in my head, my body doesn't matter. And so I'm laying on the, the side of the couch trying to just throw this joint together. And even just the first like drawback on it was just like, no, was just no. Everything in me was rejecting it. And yeah, I, I respect it now because it was, I was I was taking the piss. I, I developed such a tolerance that it was I had such a large amount of FECO from a, a previous grow. Um, nobody around me sort of was immediately needing it or asking for it. And it was Christmas. And I was, to be honest, I was feeling a bit fucking lonely. It was my first Christmas alone um in well over a decade and so yeah i made a massive christmas dinner i was like i'm gonna fucking enjoy this it's gonna be brilliant you know i went out took acid on uh, the christmas morning went for a walk and then had this uh, on the evening and probably actually the two were probably why it was so fucked up but yeah it was literally i think two days after box we have boxing day in the uk so it's like the 29th and i was literally just like mates about you coming out for uh new year's what are you doing for new year's and i'm like i'm hoping to get off the couch <laughs> it was uh yeah a very yeah difficult difficult experience so i can understand how it not only psychic it was not necessarily even psychedelic it was it was challenging my psyche i've had lsd experiences where i've kind of broken and i've been sat in the experience and i'm going i really need this to stop and with every iteration of that thought the experience obviously gets 10 times worse because acid is especially one of those drugs that goes no 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 you're in this now i've got you come with me and you've just got to yeah. ri ride that kind of that that wave but yeah the when it compounds like that, it, again, it can get dangerous. And like, as we were alluding to before, I worry of the sort of capitalist intention of needing everybody to consume that little bit more, that little bit more, that little bit more, you know? Well, I mean, yeah. Capitalism is going to do its thing. So True. that's why, <laughs> public, you know, public policy is, is important to create a level playing field mm -hmm. and to make sure that that like you said the people laid the tracks down get to drive the trains too um and don't just get hijacked so you know that's what happened to a lot of people 
in America right now, particularly in California, and happened to me and my company, Harborside, got taken over by investors. It's now basically a corporate weed company instead of a, you know, righteous mm-hmm. activist company. Um, and um, and so you know, we the good news is a lot of us are are working really hard to do that, create the level playing field, create an ecosystem that includes our people. And if capitalism won't let that happen, we'll crush them in the underground. So, you know, that's what's kind of happening right now in California is uh, even the big legal cannabis companies are losing money here Mm. because the underground is just crushing the legal market. It's just crushing it in a vice. Um, And you know, the underground market is just as innovative, has almost all the same products, just as sophisticated with the branding, doesn't have the lab testing, doesn't have, you know, the quality of, of knowing everything that's in it, but there's still really good. Most of the best weed is in the underground market, not the legal market. Um, uh, there's also some nasty pesticide stuff too happening in an underground market, but um, just like there is everywhere. But Mm. so that's what, you know, if you don't, if you don't get the, we call them legacy people, you can also call them stoners. If you don't get the stoners in, you're gonna have to deal with the stoners one way or the other. (laughs) You can't lock them all up. We already tried that, it doesn't work. You can't ostracize them from the market they'll just out compete you underground you have to get them in somehow we have to get our people in and it's good for us too because then we don't go to jail um and and that's lovely um and we can not have to hide from the world we're pretty talented folks we ought to be able to contribute um like everybody else does and the world needs our contributions right now and so let's 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 come out of the shadows and into the light Hell yeah, hell yeah. As I was describing, as the weird, the wonderful, uh, yeah, and the beautiful. They are the creative types that we've alluded to, the just alternative. If you just don't feel you fit in in the world that has been created for us by neoliberalistic politics, then you belong. Whether you recognize it or not, we are of the same ilk. You know what I mean? We're of that same tribe. It's a, it's a very large tent, and everyone's invited as long as they don't want to, you know, come inside and subjugate the people in order to profit from them, which is... What, what we're seeing is it's an ever more concentration of, well, you had Reaganomics in the States, we had Thatcherism, of this deregulated neoliberalistic politics that has now become so pernicious and a blood sport that we're on the verge of, of trillionaire wars. You know what I mean? These fuckers are pissing around going, oh, we need to save the environment while sticking tens of thousands of gallons of fuel into it to, just to fuck off the space for 20 minutes for a selfie. You know, yeah. we're, so, we're, we're so detached from bad. this that it's it's that wealth speaks I was talking to someone the other day and I was, we were just basically on about the money is now the ultimate uh, leveler in that you can be a horrible human being, but if you have money, people will treat you like you're nice. They'll say horrible things about you behind your back, but they'll give you that. They'll give you that world. You will have, you walk through your life with everyone throwing roses at your feet, never realizing beyond your delusion. So mm-hmm. they, they drive all of this capital and all of these initiatives. And it's almost become like a, a, 
a kind of capitalist colonialism. And so they're coming into these cultures rather than physical communities around the world and going, LGBTQ, we know how to figure that out. You're doing trans wrong. You're doing gay wrong. Let us show you how it's done. You're doing, yeah. that's what it, it feels like though, is they're coming in and going, all right, we, we co-opt it. So we've got to remember the origins of Stonewall, the origins of a community that came together that went, are you queer? Didn't matter what branch, what letter, what it was. Are you an alternative non-hetero individual? Come fucking fight us because they're coming for us. And that's what the movement started as. And now you've got police riot vans fucking with rainbow flags on for a month and week of fucking year. And these cops marching with their badges, forgetting the heritage of what they did to us. The same is true of the drug war. I mean, there's that guy, what's his name? Bill... I'm going to say Bill Burr. I don't want to mention that he's not a comedian. There's a Bill Blair, I think his name is, the, the, the former cop up in, in Canada. And he was known as a really pernicious, vicious cop for drugs. All of a sudden, he's in his retirement, invests a lot of fucking money in a weed, and he's making bank on a kickback. It's like, how, how are these people the ones that are to profit from this when we're still going to jail? We're still in prison. We're still being ostracized, demonized. They've gone, oh, you actually consume cannabis. <laughs> I just sell it. Like, get the fuck out of my community. You're exploiting us. You know what I mean? If you are not of us, don't be with us. And I think that's one of the things I really appreciate from the civil rights movement in America. There was a moment where basically the black community went, we're going to only fucking shop at black shops. And they economically showed their power. And that's what we're seeing now with stoners, legacy, whatever you want to term us. I, don't, I find stoners to be a term of endearment. Some people find it to be a negative term. Oh, I love stoner. Yeah. And we've won it back. That's our word. Um, yeah, exactly. As you say, without us at the table, guess what? We're just going to go make our own table and ours will be better and we'll win. There'll be longevity. And I think to to go back to one of what your earlier points about, we've got to fuck this up to, to fix this because it's so fucked. We need to start listening to the younger generation. I'm not even just saying me, I'm 34 now, but we need to recognize that we're, we've won a lot of our, you guys have won a lot of your fight. Now the kids coming up, they're trying to show you their fight and their fight is, wait, wait, if this is prohibited, this, I still want this. Prohibition doesn't work regardless of the substance, regardless of the, you know, the, uh, the way it manifests within the culture. So we're all getting a bit, oh, we don't agree with your sexuality. We don't agree with your polyamory. We don't agree with your non-marriage and your erosion of conservative Christian values in Western democracies. But why the fuck not? We're doing exactly to them what they what was done to us around weed and drugs. Do you know what I mean? And so there's, I read a quote years ago and I rallied against it. And I'm like, you will always get more, I think it was Ayn Rand or somebody like that. The people will always get more conservative the older they get. And I was like, fuck you. And I didn't realize that what, what that means is our liberalism slides into the new conservative. We become the mainstream. And therefore there is a new liberalism, a new kind of way of, of voices in the cannabis space that are challenging the old paradigms. Because as you say, they've been corrupted by these, neoliberalist capitalists that are going, we're going to care about quarterly profits. How many how many grams per acre? How much is this saving? They don't care about the passion, the culture, the creativity. They're, they're actively now suppressing it through economic violence rather than prohibitive criminal violence. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I know exactly what you mean. And all I can say is there's a battle for the soul of the cannabis industry globally going on right now. And it's just like making sure our job is to make sure cannabis stays cool for everybody younger than us. It's also our job to make sure we win the battle for the soul of the cannabis industry. And, you know, we'll we have to win the overall war. We might lose some battles along the way. 
Um, we lost California in some ways. Doesn't mean we won't get it back, but um, you know, but but we're gonna. But it looks like we're gonna do much better in New York. So um, where the first hundred dispensary licenses are going to legacy people. Um, so uh, never been done before. So that's you know we're we're getting better with. We still are getting our clocks cleaned by the corporate guys right now, but but I think we're starting to reverse the trend. So like in Canada, the corporate guys had to destroy something like ten million. Oh, I know this one. I read it the other day. Uh, between ten point eight million grams of weed or something like that. Way more, way more. I read it the other day. It's, it's, oh, like pounds it's four four hundred and eighty something million grams between January and December of twenty twenty one. Four hundred and eighty odd million grams. I can't yeah, conceptualize like, that. Yeah, no, it's a huge amount, right? And 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 they're saying that we don't know what we're doing, <laughs> right? I'm like. We would never make a mistake where we grew that much weed that we couldn't sell. Um, if we did that, we'd all be dead. Um, we wouldn't be able to do anything. So, you know, um, but what's, what is selling in Canada is the craft cannabis. Mm. So craft cannabis is starting to clean their clocks in the dispensaries. And the big companies are now buying craft cannabis and selling it in the selling it instead of selling their own so we're starting that's, to that's um sorry to interject uh, we had remo on i think he was discussing he called it the farm to table bill i think was colloquially what he called it and i think yeah, yeah a few years after california because originally for people that don't know canada had a system where basically the government huh, we've just legalized weed grow it sell it to us and then we'll we'll dispense it effectively yeah. um and so yeah they then updated that law last year i believe maybe the year before you had to mail it you had to get it in the mail from the government Mm -hmm. yeah and the government bought it from producers yeah yeah so now they've opened that up yeah exactly that as soon as they've opened it up people are just comparing with so tilray made this whereas this mom and pop company that we're doing it for 30 years in bc did this yeah i know where my money's gonna go do you know what i mean yeah i mean this is offers us great hope i think um, if we can get, if we can sort of win the licensing and financing battles that capitalism is going to try to lock us out with those two things and they're going to, but if we can win enough of those battles to get on the playing field, we'll win mm-hmm. when it comes down to who's going to have the best products or who's going to have the best experiences for customers. Mm-hmm. and that's where i think we have a lot of hope and and that's where i hope we'll cultivate our skills so you know we have to be good at not just making great weed we have to be good at being mainstream business people and entrepreneurs and complying with rules and you know probably getting some lab testing done on our products and you know there's some things like that we have to get good at in the legal market but i i think that I think craft cannabis, just like microbreweries mm-hmm. and farm to table restaurants and food, I think craft cannabis has the potential to have a big chunk of the market share. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm working on a lot, you know, 
because at the end of the day, we have to not just change laws, but get really good at the operation of in, in, in the world of commerce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to have businesses that work, that succeed, that are profitable, that are fair, mm-hmm. that are sustainable, that are environmentally strong. You can't grow weed indoors and 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 be green. You simply can't do it. It's not possible. I don't know um, why you would grow cannabis indoors in California and places like it, that. It's uh, only because of stigma and laws and stupidity and absurdity and people think that you can't grow as good a weed outdoors as you can indoors. Um, and that's wrong. And so, you know, again, it's just like, we have to get good at, we have to get our own house in order. You know, you got people like burner and cookies. You talk to him, he won't grow outdoors that much. He really wants to grow indoors. He has great weed. He's got a huge successful company. Am I'm going to tell him he's wrong? No, I'm not, but I am going to say, well, how can we make that more green and keep everything that's great about it? So, um, and, and if we can do that, these are all things we need to get good at, you know, and, and, and then we'll, we'll, we can be proud of what we're building and, you know, we got to get on the playing field first to do all that. So that, that's a really important, we got to win the overall war for the heart of the cannabis industry. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. And I think this is a perfect segue into uh, that pin. I'll take that take that out. I've recently been doing a lot of work around language. I, for context, completely failed academically, was, was kicked out of school, spent very little time in, in mainstream education, somehow ended up as a writer and an avid reader. Along the way, I've become quite pedantic about language and... I've recognized what happened here in the UK. I, I fought with with many fellow activists, some great men and women across this country to get things moving here in the UK. I onboarded quite late. There were obviously many great uh, activists uh, and advocates before me that did amazing work, and I honor them or try to with everything I do. But I've basically arrived at a point of recognizing that the divisions between the subgroups are entirely because of misinterpreted language, uh, that the terms that we use and not standardize so that when we end up in conversations we end up interchangeably using words that mean different things when the industries that have been built around us those legislations are enacted in legalese in very specific language so when we colloquially interchangeably say marijuana or hemp or whatever we almost dilute the conversation. I've been doing a lot of work around false dichotomies so that when we speak of the main one, obviously before, and for context again here, Andrew, I'm not going to say I had a meltdown, but I have been hosting stalls and doing whatever for about six years at events across the country. This weekend on the Sunday, I kind of lost my shit for the first time in a conversation with a couple of gentlemen from a air quotes medical cannabis company. Uh, walked off the field, went and did a three-minute live, quite explicit-laden, um, where I basically, basically go, like, medical cannabis isn't a fucking thing. There is cannabis, the plant, and we can use it medicinally. Whereas creating the term medical cannabis suggests uh, it within our, our minds that cannabis, ego, isn't medical. Only medical cannabis can do what medical can do. you know what I mean? And so... Basically, I was opposite, again, for context, a zone that despite my employers and the conversations I had with them, they called the medical zone. I begged them to call it medicinal zone. 
or prescribed zone or something other than that nomenclature and terminology. So yeah, I basically got got very frustrated around this. And what I'm trying to do is in the UK, working now with several of the activists and uh, organizations and entities, basically to create like a standard text and template of the language that we use here. So that from that, all of the people that are trying to protect the plant in every sentence, in every time that they, they speak to protect it, they are speaking back to the plant rather than going, oh, we're trying to just get CBD, which we've seen what they've done now. We've got yeast extracts. We've got orange peel extracts, other biosyntheses. That's what they've done and created with, with CBD as an industry because we separated CBD from cannabis. Then we separated it with from hemp. The, the you guys, unfortunately, as the Americans were the first ones to do that. I've gone, wait a minute. If we call it a different thing, we can criminalize the drug and keep the industry. We can then actually license that industry and make it ever more profitable. And we created this divergence that again says, if you grow cannabis, you can't make t-shirts, you can't make plastics, you can't make biofuels. Only hemp can do that. And I visited a farm, not going to name him, but shout out to, you know who you are, I'm, I'm not going to name you. Uh, stood at his farm in Mendocino. And we were on a second floor grow room, like dry room. And he pointed to this mountain. Went, went, What's this? And he went, oh, it's sticks and stems. I don't know, have you ever heard of graphene? You know, have you, have you, have you ever heard of, of uh, some, and just listed off basically all the industrial applications I knew. And the guy just got redder and redder and more and more frustrated. And he explained that in California, his license means that he can only procure it for a drug. So all of that carbon that he sequestered, all of the potential materials that that can make, the plastics that that can defer from the marketplace, the do you know what I mean? Is then not legally allowed to touch it. Whereas yeah. then Jeff Sessions comes along and swiftly creates this hemp act. And that was supposed to be for the industrial properties. But look at what, again, most of the states have done, created for biomass to now make HHC, THCP, you know, name your acronyms these days of all of the different variants that are being biosynthesized from this mass. And again, we have no efficacy of this. The only reason it's legal is because it falls out of current regulation. Whereas yeah. again, we've separated all of that from the plant again. We're still, in my opinion, betraying that plant. So that's, well, that, that's what I meant about that. we're highly processing that plant, all right, to get the Delta 9 and the Delta 10 and all the other stuff that hemp-derived cannabinoids, um, it's highly processed. To, to extract CBD from orange peels is highly processed in a lab, right? So um, if you don't want to eat highly processed foods, <laughs> don't eat them. Um, if you don't want to take highly processed cannabis, you know, don't do that. Now, we don't have a level playing field. So right now in places like Texas, you can get hemp derived Delta nine, but you can't get THC in buds, you know? Um, uh, so, it's all messed up. So again, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it's all one plant. Um, it, it, it and you know, the rope is the dope and you know, let's, let's unfortunately California really got it wrong with hemp. Um, and, and everywhere else is too. And again, capitalism has somewhat of a role to play in that. Um, uh, but also just, ignorance, bad public policy, people not caring enough, not knowing enough, um, not trying hard enough to get it right. And so just carelessness a lot of times is, is what's behind a lot of this. So, you, you know, it's, 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 
we we but i agree with you i i i i don't think we're ever going to get away from highly processed products um climate mitigating climate change i think will simplify a lot of plot products in the world and make things less processed mm -hmm. just because processing things usually takes a lot of energy and heat um and and we just don't have it we just don't have the carbon to put in the air to make a potato chip um just eat a potato you know what i mean so um um uh, you know, or spray a potato chip with all this flavoring and I don't know, all this shit. So same thing with highly processed lab equipment and CO2, you know, a CO2 that you make extracts from or that you put in the grow rooms, guess what happens to CO2? Goes up in the atmosphere. Guess what CO2 is? Fossil fuel. I mean, you know, it's not good. So it creates heat. It traps greenhouse gas. So, you know, Whereas flour that grows organically under the sun and you smoke in a joint, no CO2. It actually produces, <laughs> it actually sequesters uh, the carbon. And, 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 and if you take the stem that it's grown from and make something from the stem, then you've done even more with it, right? So as you alluded to, we can make things from the stem. So, um, so, you know, I think that there's promise in all of these things. We just have to get it right, man. I mean, and I hate to tell you this, but I only have about five more minutes to talk to you, but, but no. before I talk to somebody else, but, but, um, but I, 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 I hope we all, we get to the place where it's all one plant that has lots of different applications and we and some of those are medicinal and some of those are industrial and some of those are yeah i think we'll be growing fields of hemp just to sequester carbon we might not even do all that much with the actual hemp i mean we might just let Re it rewild it baby that's what i want yeah. to say literally just you know how we did there's a famous video of them launching fish in one of the lakes in america from the back of a helicopter to repopulate it i want to see that but cannabis seeds over vast parts of the surface of the earth it's something jack harris spoke up in his book uh, yeah, I can't remember the statistics, but there was a, a certain percentage of the earth that basically was natural wild cannabis that had escaped all of the centuries of our usage around the world and was just naturally sequestering this carbon because she's dionysius. So she was just going male, female, sort herself out in every cycle, coming back and back and back and back and yeah. figuring it out. And yeah, the absence yeah. of that, plus then us growing, as you said, I mean, we're worse now in the UK. We're importing Canadian, Israeli and Australian cannabis and being for people that are being prescribed it when those same people are growing it in their houses as well i know it's it's an insanity when yeah you look at it i so know sweden and germany and all of europe's doing that yeah uh, i mean there's very few places in europe actually producing denmark i think i know is one holland is another but well, I mean, they're exporting only <laughs> i was gonna say yeah the um, uk is the world leader in that one still uh we just don't ever get to see it <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you export it, you don't get to see it. And, um, uh, and oh my God, how absurd is that? It's good for everyone else except you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was talking to one of the regu regulators here in the UK who basically wrote a report for it. And, uh, the sentence that I came up with was once we looked at the contradictory schedules in the UK, a doctor signs a piece of paper here in the UK 
and makes your cannabis medicinal. If the doctor doesn't sign the piece of paper, it's a drug and it's dangerous. <laughs> that is the semantics of the law in this country. As long yeah. as they that doctor signed the paper and you've bought it from them, that's medicinal. Whereas if you grow it, it can't be medicinal. It's an, in, an insanity, an absurdity. So it actually brings me quite on to give my last two questions because uh, we're out of time. Uh, how do you, or what would your ideal sort of resolution to this be? And you've obviously been involved in the, the writing of legislation and seen a lot of different states come on board. Obviously, we're now having the federal conversation and I'm enjoying the term descheduling as in removing the plant and all its applications from criminal uh, sanctions. Yeah. So uh, sure. what, do you, what do you think that I suppose you'd like to see and, and ultimately what you think Congress and, and that are going to do anyway? Well, we got to get rid of the GMP requirements that are in Europe right now for cannabis formulations. That's just crazy. Mm. Um, like you mentioned, the if you're not putting any nasty pesticides into the weed you're growing, there's nothing wrong with it. Other, It might not be the greatest weed in the world, but other than that, there's nothing wrong with it, health, public health-wise or many other environmentally if you're not using pesticides so and if you're growing indoors you're using electricity but, but but you know the way we eliminate that is by legalization and removing criminal penalties no one really wants to grow indoors they just have to um, um, um uh, or they think it's better quality so they want to in that in that case but but those are all misconceptions we can overcome pretty quickly if we have the you know, freedom. So I, 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 and, and, you know, we, you want to, you, 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 you want to create policies that get our people into the legal market that limits the domination of larger companies and that, you know, creates as level playing field as possible. You want as wide access to the plant as possible to, and, in communities um because that's what what it is right now you want a low barrier to entry into the legal market and you want to empty prisons and you know um expunge records i think if you do all those things there's a certain amount every country and tradition is going to do it a little different you know sweden i have a client in sweden sweden the government's going to do a lot of this because they own a, a lot of the economy there. Um, the government owns it. So they're going to own a, more of the cannabis economy than, say, America will, the American government will. Um, so the American government doesn't want to own cannabis at all. Uh, um, and they want the free market mm -hmm. to own it. Um, well, then you have the problem of capitalism that uh, we refer to. And well, that's where good public policy comes in to kind of put the guardrails on that. So, you know, I think if we do all those things, we have a and home grow and nonprofit models, I think are really important community based nonprofit models. That's where a lot of our people might be able to live and exist. Um, uh, a lot of our folks, they don't want global domination, they don't want to run rule the world mm. um uh so they just want a spot so i think if we do all those things we'll have an inclusive and vibrant market excellent excellent yeah yeah, yeah i agree agree with the vast uh, vast sentiment of that 
So supposing I'll ask you my final question that I ask all my guests. Okay, yeah, sorry, they're uh, telling me I gotta go. <laughs> uh, it's all right, then I'll let you go. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Andrew. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Just thank you very much. Yeah, Simba, I really appreciate it too. I I, 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 I um, thank you for the time today. And I don't know, anytime you want to talk again. And I don't know, let me know. I'd love to come over there and speak at a gathering or a conference or, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to spend more time in Europe, so I'd love to know what's going on. I think, uh, yeah, some of the ethos of Last Prisoner definitely needs to uh, to come to the UK. We have far too much of the capitalist side of the American market. We need more of the compassionate legacy side. So bear that in mind, brother. It'd be uh, yeah, great to speak again soon as well. Okay. Thank you. I'll let you go. Cheers now, brother. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. <coughs> There you go, folks. That was Andrew D'Angelo. That was awesome. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, a few points around language I wanted to kind of get more into, um, but this just means you have to read my next article for Weed World, which is basically going to be around language. I'm, I'm quite proud of this one. I'll let you guys in on it. Uh, the title is going to be Rosetta Stoned. Because <laughs> it's all about language. I found it funny. I'm sure some of you will find it funny. We'll probably point out where I am wrong in the comments, but I find it funny anyway. Um, yeah. If you've enjoyed this episode, uh, please do check us out on... I'm not going to even end it there. Screw it. Let's talk for a minute. Uh, Product Earth. Hope you enjoyed the event, guys. It was a wonderful weekend. Uh, it was brilliant to see so many faces there. To pick up in some of you new subscribers, this might be the first episode you're watching, so thank you very much for taking the time. It was great to meet so many, fa uh, to meet so many people, to see so many bright, bubbly, happy faces. Um, yeah, obviously, the video kind of maybe went a little bit viral in the community on Sunday. I maybe apologize for some of the language, but I do not in the slightest apologize for the sentiment at all. Um, I meant everything I said and and more. I could maybe articulate it a bit better and I will seek to do so in the continuation of this, uh, the Great Medical Cannabis Con series and in other work that I produce, uh, my written work, my podcast, everything else. I will always try uh, and address this this linguistical issue because I believe if we can all speak the same language with the common definition we can always know what we mean there's a fucking lion in the tent right now and none of us know what to call it so we can't prepare to protect ourselves from it and soon it will dominate us eat us all and devour us unless we can fight back against these these legalization systems these capitalist driven neoliberalistic ideological systems of repression because this is what legalization is it's the next manifestation of prohibition it doesn't need to be legalized. We don't legalize other benign things in nature or in our lives. It's the action by which you do something. If you then make cannabis into a weapon and harm somebody, you should get done for being a weapon. But the cannabis isn't the fucking problem. It is a drug. It is a resource. It should be completely descheduled in the language that I'm using, which in the commonest of terms, I think is legalization plus decriminalization equals deschedulization. So it's a legal, regulated, commercial, industrial market, but within a fully decriminalized marketplace for individuals to do whatever the fuck they want with cannabis. In the same way, if I wanted to grow giant pumpkins and in my garden, who is to stop me? The pumpkin police are not going to come around and say, that pumpkin's too big, you've got too many pumpkins. What are you going to do with that pumpkin when you're done with it? It's It's nature. It's a plant. And the only thing I want to clarify from that video is not that it's ours, it's all of ours. Anyone that is seeking to dominate, control, restrict this plan, they are not a friend to it. They are not one of those people that we have just spoke of that has had that revelatory experience with cannabis. If you have, then you are a warrior. She has spoken to you. She has chosen you. I may sound a bit hyperbole, a little bit crazy and a bit pseudo-spiritual, but that's what I believe, man. We're chosen by the plan to protect her. So, yeah, that's my two cents for this week.
I might do that actually. Yeah, do you want to Jerry Jerry Springer kind of after thoughts after each podcast? <laughs> all right, folks, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, please do check us out on all social media platforms at Simple Life. Give us a little like and share if you've enjoyed this. If you've really enjoyed this, check us out on Patreon.com, where for less than a cup of coffee a week, you can have to keep the lights on in this place. And I don't know if you noticed, it's like four of them, five of them. So that's that's some pennies. Yeah, just yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. I just appreciate the fucking help and support, folks. Because either way, I'm gonna be here. I don't care if I make three pence, three pound, three hundred pounds. It's irrelevant. We're still gonna be sat in this room, chatting shit every week. I cannot wait for next week's guest, which I was gonna do my jokey. I don't know who it is, but we've already told you, haven't you? It's Dennis McKenna, and I can't fucking wait. It's gonna be brilliant. Check us out, folks, on everywhere. All that jazz. Peace. <laughs>